0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to Daisy Johnson, who this year was the youngest author ever to be shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Uh,
1: Daisy spoke about how she got into writing, um, the experiences she had studying creative writing at Oxford uh, as a Masters. She also talked about the Man Booker Prize ceremony and what it was like to attend it. Uh, as well as uh, her new book, a horror book, which uh, is yet to be named.
0: It's a really interesting interview. Uh, it gives an insight in what it's like to be at the centre of a kind of literary maelstrom, and we hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome to Always Take Notes. We are here with Daisy Johnson, who is the youngest Ever author to have been shortlisted for the man at Booker Prize. Congratulations Daisy. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were when you found out that you were on the long list? How you felt? How you reacted?
2: Um, actually I was the same place when I found out I both the long list and the short list. Um, there's a little girl I babysit for and I was looking after her um, when my editor rang me <laughs> and my editor said, um, can you go somewhere quiet? And I thought she was going to tell me something awful. I thought something really bad had happened. Like they hated my writing and they, (laughs) um, and then they told me, um, and the little girl I was babysitting, uh, is very into phones. So she was kind of stood next to me being like, phone, Daisy, phone. (laughs) Um, I felt very overwhelmed. I think, um, it wasn't even something, obviously it's kind of the dream of every, um, of every literary writer, uh, in the writing in English language, but it's not something I'd ever considered, um, yeah, it kind of blew me away, to be honest. And it's taken
1: quite a long time to get over it. <laughs> and I should have mentioned this is for your book, Everything Under, which is your second uh, book after your collection of short stories, Fen. Can you describe um, just briefly for maybe listeners who who haven't read it, what it's about? So it's a
2: retelling of a Greek myth. Um, I won't say what Greek myth, but it's primarily about a young woman who um, goes on a quest to find her mother. She hasn't seen her mother for... Over a decade, and as she looks for her, she remembers what it was like to live with her mother. They lived together on a canal boat on the river. And she had a very strange childhood, and there's something weird happening when she was a child that she can't quite remember. Um, and eventually, she finds her mother, and everything begins coming to a head.
0: And can we um, rewind from from that to to where your kind of interest in in writing really began? Um, and I'm, I'm really fascinated reading. About the Fens and the role of that kind of area. I mean, I grew up in Cambridge, so I'm familiar with mm. with that. But could you could you take us back to the beginning, really, to when you were first interested in putting words on pages?
2: I think I was always interested in it. I think um, I was very lucky. I had parents who were always giving me books. I was always reading. Um, I think I was always interested in, uh, slightly in awe of people who were writing of the readers I was um, of the writers I was reading. Um, and I definitely think, as you said, that growing up. I grew up in the rural fens. We moved around a lot. We were all Where in. Where were you? Um, we moved around a lot, but Newmarket area to begin okay. with, and then kind of moved up to into Essex.
1: Okay.
2: Um, and we would always live in these very strange rented houses, you know, sort of old churches or um, old uh, like keepers' houses um, at the edge of parks. Um, so I what had a. Why? Um, I think because. For various reasons, you know, because we were renting so we'd get thrown out of somewhere because someone else needed to move in or my dad's job, we moved around a lot for that or I changed schools. Um, And I remember it really fondly. I loved being in different houses and I think actually it was probably quite stressful for my parents. Um, But we were always living in places where before you could drive, there was no way to get anywhere. You know, there weren't any buses. Um, And I think maybe that's why I write about what I write. Uh, You know, the wild places um, and particularly what it means to grow up somewhere like that, how it changes you.
0: Are you conscious at all of being in a kind of Fenland literary tradition? I mean, I thought, do you know that um, Jill Dawson, who wrote a 10 years ago and novel about Rupert Brooke, was kind of very f- found in that kind of Cambridge or, or sort of Fenland tradition. Do you see yourself fitting in that at all?
2: I don't think so, because I think, I might go back to it, but certainly for the moment I feel like I've done writing about the Fens. Um, I think I'll always write about nature um, and the wild areas of the UK, But writing about the fens was almost um, something I felt I needed to get out. Um, And I obviously I read Waterland, the Graham Swift novel, which I actually didn't like very much. (laughs) Um, Hopefully he's not going to listen to this. Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, it was almost a compulsion to write about that place I'd come from. Mm -hmm. And I feel like
1: that compulsion is now done, at least for the moment. When you write about nature, how kind of rooted is it in your own imagination, and how much you kind of writing down specific notes and what, what you're seeing around you, and going to specific locations, particular yeah. to, to parts of your book? Um, it always starts with a specific location. Uh, so for
2: uh, so for everything under, it was uh, the canal around where I live in Oxford, um, and riding around that canal um, with my partner. Uh, but then it, you know, I think it's also my own world I think that I'm creating you know potentially readers going along that canal wouldn't recognize it um from the book um I I think I think of it as the world the outside world but sort of from an angle um but it's always based on somewhere that I've been um the most recent uh thing I'm working on is set in Yorkshire um yeah
0: could you tell us a bit about the role of uh, formal education in creative writing has played for you because am I right in saying you did a creative writing degree both as an undergraduate and then as a master's well, we've obviously had people involved from that world on the show and also Kieran uh, Millwood-Hargreave um, could you tell us what, what that experience was like for you?
2: Yeah I suppose I was very lucky because I knew from quite a young age that, um, that I wanted to do something creative I wanted to be an artist or I wanted to write um, and I was very lucky to know that straight to you know going off into um education so I went to Lancaster and did English and creative writing and then yeah did creative writing at Oxford um i get really angry i think at people who are negative about creative writing courses because actually i don't think i think writing is something that you can learn and it's about how you know how often you do it um i think you have to learn how to edit how to how to be edited um and spending those sort of five years before I actually became a writer um, doing that has made me the writer I am today Um, and I certainly think that there's sometimes a bit of mystery surrounded by writing and I just do think it is uh, you know surrounding yourself by writers, um, surrounding yourself by people who are talking about writing, um, by people who are talking about books is really really important.
1: Yeah why do you think there is still that stigma around creative writing courses is it because people like to think like you're born with a natural flair for writing and you either have it or you don't?
2: Yeah I think that's true. Um, I think there's that sort of old um, image of a writer in a garret on their own you know being very lonely um, but having these amazing creative ideas that no one else will be able to have and I think um, that that is an outdated idea and actually one of the things that I found most important particularly from doing the masters was meeting other writers who I then kept in contact with um, since then you know and we read each other's work we write together and I think it can be very lonely but it doesn't necessarily have to be.
0: And how did the the experience of the undergrad creative writing course versus the the postgrad? What was what was different with that? We should also say there's various mysterious <laughs> noises going <laughs> yeah, on like outside. Painting. Let's just acknowledge that uh, and and push on. Um, but yes, yeah, so the the difference between um, the undergraduate experience and the the Oxford course.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose when I was doing it as an undergraduate, I didn't. I was almost trying it out. You know, I was also doing English literature, but so there was the possibility that I wouldn't be a writer, that that's not the um, direction I would go down. Whereas when I did it as a master's, um, I suppose I felt like I was putting something on the line. I was saying, right, I'm going to be a writer now. I'm going to really, really try this. Um, also, the interesting thing about the Oxford masters is that you try all the different um, types of writing. So you write plays and you write poetry, um, which was really interesting. So there were a lot of people on there who didn't know what kind of writing they wanted to do. They just had a feeling that they wanted to write. Um also, the Oxford one was part-time, which was quite nice. So I was working at the same time as doing it. Um, what were you doing? I was working in a bookshop, in Blackwell's bookshop in Oxford. Oh, lovely. Yeah, which was, um, which was nice, actually. Uh, so it was quite in kind of intense weekends where you'd come together and you know spend the whole weekend talking about writing and having class, and then you'd go away again. So it was what very different. What period was it over? Uh, two years. Okay. Yeah.
0: And it seems that that cohort has, has had a lot of success. Do you think, was there a, a thing of... You mentioned surrounding yourself by writers. Was it a, a group experience as well as an individual experience?
2: I think so, yeah. I think um, it was a very good course, but I think the, the best thing that most of us got out of that was being surrounded by those people. Um, you know, being surrounded by people who only talked about writing for two years and only talked about reading, you know, um, people as, an, as obsessed with it as you are, I think, uh, was really, really important.
1: And, and what are you doing? So you're writing full time at the moment. Yeah. How are you finding that in te- financially and in, in, in terms of feeling that you have to do other work as well? Yeah. So I
2: babysit a bit. Um, as I said, um, I teach a little bit. Um, I'm finding it, it. I mean, it's strange being self-employed, isn't it? Because you're constantly watching the money go down in a slightly panicked way. Um, and that's something to get used to. Um and also, writing full time is quite isolating, as you know, no one's telling you to work; um, you just have to work yourself. Um, Do you write at home in Oxford? Yeah, I write at home mostly, um, or around Oxford. Yeah, um, but I really enjoy it, actually. I like it. I like having the time for the project to, um, you know, compost and to really work a bit, work on it, to really think about it.
0: And um, we always, we should say on the money thing, it's something we ask everyone on the show because mm-hmm. we feel that it's, it's not. Um discussed in this sort of world but does that i mean you know fiction advances are not massive and so forth. are you able to to make it work to support yourself i mean you say a bit of work around the side but you know does it are you self-supporting as a writer
2: just about yeah. um yeah I've, I've been so lucky this last year i got a really good teaching gig for a couple of months at york okay. i also won the Edghill prize which yeah. was ten thousand pounds and that kind of took me from um being completely panicked to being just about okay mm-hmm. um and then, again, with all of the uh, Man Booker stuff, uh, it just means the book's selling better. My advances will hopefully be a bit bigger. I'm getting more foreign advances. But it was, it is, yeah, particularly advances here are not very big. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are always sort of just eking it out for as long as possible. Um, and I am in now in the fortunate position that there is like less eking, um, mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is really nice. Do you have, have you ever thought about a backup plan just in case when, you know, in a few years time, you never know where these things go? Yeah, teaching, I guess, yeah. is sort of my backup plan. Um, and I thought a lot about doing a
2: PhD to make that easier, but that's not right at the moment. Um, I'm also, I also guess, I, I hope that Blackwells would always take me back <laughs> <laughs> if something really awful happened. Um, but I think definitely teaching, te- you know, teaching for bits and bobs um, to try and get me through is sort of my backup plan
0: and would that be teaching creative writing or teaching in a sort of more conventional literature Yeah, teaching way? creative writing, yeah. Sure. And can you tell us a bit about, you know, what your your ways into to publishing were in terms of, you know, how you where you were publishing your first stories, how you went through the mechanics of agent editor. What mm-hmm. what were the kind of you know, the nursery slopes into into fiction for you? How did it work?
2: So, doing the undergrad really got me into writing short stories that was kind of what we were writing that's what we were working on and I found it really hard just writing and not having anywhere to send them so I decided that I was going to start sending off stuff to competitions and to magazines um and that's sort of what I was doing while I was at Oxford um and I got a few things kind of a lot of local stuff um and then I got something in the Boston Review which was kind of the, the first big thing that ever happened, and. Um, at the same time, I was working on a novel and sending that out to people. Um, nothing happened with that one. And then I was working on Fenn, my short story collection, and sending that out. And I managed to get an agent. Um, and I worked with that agent. Were you
0: just sending it out blind? Or was the, did the course at Oxford was it able to kind of funnel you?
2: Um, at that people? point, I was sending it out blind. And then, actually, so when I got the agent, um, it was that the course had an end-of-year reading. And they would send out a pamphlet to um, a lot of agencies um and the agent got in contact with me through that um and I worked with him on Fen, and then also on we kind of decided that uh people don't publish short stories <laughs> so I needed to work on a novel as well so then we kind of worked on a novel idea together and then when I'd finished most of Fen, we sent that out to publishers um and I managed to get a two-book deal with Jonathan Cape um And then I've since changed agents for various reasons. Um, But yeah, that's kind of how I came about.
0: What is your view on the short story as as form? I mean, as as you say, like it's economically not that viable, Mm. but it seems that both within the teaching of creative writing and people trying to publish it, that, you know, there is interest there. Perhaps this is changing. But I, I and, you know, aesthetically as well. What do you think about it?
2: Yeah, on a um, publishing level, I think it is changing. I think um, there's been some really massive short story collections over the last year or so. Um, you know, talking about um, cat pe- cat people—is that what the short story mm, was called? The one, the New Yorker one. Yeah, cat person. Cat, cat person. People. yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, things like that, I think, are just slightly blowing it up a bit more. Um, I also think, for me, it was how I learned how to write. You know, it was how I learned how to be edited. Um, And that's, I think, why I'll always write short stories. They're kind of where I've come from. Um, But, you know, we're talking about money. I knew quite early on that if I wanted to make it as a writer, I couldn't just write short stories. Um, There just isn't, you know, there are a couple of writers in the world who just write short stories, most of them American, I think. Um, And I think you do have to consider that when you go into it. Um, But I do think also that short stories are a really good way to... You know, writing a novel, you don't have any criticism for years and years while you're writing it, whereas whereas if you can write a short story, you can send it out to places, you can get feedback. Um, So I do think it's a really good place, not just to start, but to, you know, for all writers to
1: do. And what was the process like for writing your short stories versus how you wrote everything under in terms of how long you wrote for? Mm. I, I know that you, you said previously that everything undertook many drafts and you would change the setting and the characters, which must have been draining. Mm. How, can you talk us through that?
2: Yeah, so Fen, I'm not sure how long Fen took, maybe a couple of years to write. Um, and there were definitely hard bits um, of writing it. Uh, but perhaps because I've just finished everything under, I, oh, I don't, everything I did did feel a lot harder to write, I think. Um, by the time I'd written Fan, I'd been writing short stories for quite a long time. Um, I knew how to do them. Um, I hadn't mastered it, but I kind of understood the form. You know, I was reading a lot of short stories. Um, and then when I came to writing a novel, um, I'd written novels before, but nothing up to the... Uh, you know, that was finished. Um, so I was teaching myself how to write a novel, which I think is why I took are so many How you teaching drops. yourself? By mucking up, like, endlessly. Um uh so the yeah so the way it worked was I would write a draft and then um delete most of it take maybe a paragraph and then write another draft with that paragraph in and eventually there were less and less things deleted but it did take maybe seven entire rewrites to get to the finished form um it, it wasn't a logical way to write it you know I didn't plan when I was writing I just sort of plowed it plowed on um and I do hope I do wonder if the next novel I write won't be written that way but, I, but but potentially also everything under had to be written that way because it's fragmented. Um, you know, I was working out what um, point of view I wanted to use, what tenses I wanted to use, what characters I needed to talk. Um, yeah, and I think when I write short stories, they tend to, they come quite fast. Mm. Um, you know, they'll be in my head for a while and then they'll be written quite fast. Um, and there won't be that sort of going back over and deleting and deleting um, endless drafts, which was quite... Which is quite painful, I think, for you know, for this kind of panic that I'd already got a, I'd already got an advance for the for the novel. I had to write a novel, um, so I was, I think, I was panicking as I as I wrote it, and that's maybe why it was written the way it was.
1: Were you? Go ahead, Ellie. I was just going to say, were you worried at any point? Because because everything under is, you know, you trust the reader. You don't signpost everything, which I think mm. it, it is good, um, and the narrative isn't linear. Um, did you worry that an editor, an impatient editor, might? make you simplify it a lot and, and take that, that quirkiness out of it I
2: was working with the editor on it quite a lot from the beginning um, because the draft I showed them right at the start when they bought it um, was entirely different from the draft that was then at the end um, so a lot of it was my you know having phone calls with my editor, them sending me long emails saying this is what I think we should do um, so I knew that the editor's idea for what it was was quite similar to mine um, what I did worry about was readers not you know, finding it difficult. And I know some readers, you know, some people come up to me at signings and say, well, I found it very confusing. Um, and I did want them to be a sense of discombobulation, I think, as you're reading it. I did want you to feel like the characters feel slightly confused, but I didn't want it to be too confusing. Um, and I think that is a line that it balances on and sometimes falls the wrong way.
0: Can you talk a bit about the process of editing in fiction? Because, you know, obviously editing is an enormous part of writing, but in in something as Subjective as, as fiction. Um, how, how, what's your experience of that? What are your positive experiences of editing, and perhaps some of the more challenging experiences you've had?
2: Yeah. So um, I was teaching a class in York uh, this year, and one of the things I really tried to go to them is that they have to edit. You know that you you. I think writing. Um, I'm. I know some people love editing, but writing for me is such a beautiful thing. You know, you're kind of streaming onto the page, um, and I'd said to the students, you know. of writing is editing. Um, And I found that really hard, especially with everything under. I think one of the hardest things I found was just how many words were being deleted. You know, whole threads, whole ideas, whole books were being deleted. Um, And that was really, really challenging. I think one of the things that really worked for me was putting it away, you know, between each draft for as long as I possibly could, putting it in a drawer, um, not thinking about it, and then trying to come back to it with fresh eyes um, and see it the way... um, a first reader would see it. How long would you put it away for? As long as possible. You know, as long as I possibly had. So months Months. at a time, yeah. Um, Because otherwise you're just so close to it, you can't see what's going on. Um, I also enjoyed... I think one of the nice things about editing is that in some drafts it's just you, but eventually you'll send it out to someone. You know, you'll send it to a friend or you'll send it to your agent or your parents. Um, And then... Is the discussion about it? You know, the discussion about what it means, what you're trying to say. Um, and I enjoyed that with everything under.
0: How big is your circle of of early readers? That you're, we had we had Hermione Leon who said that she became a, a Philip Roth reader in the early '80s oh, and was nice. like welcome <laughs> into this this little how world. Terrifying. Yeah, well, he wasn't quite as famous then. But who who? How many people is it going to in a relatively early form?
2: Um, it's going to three friends um, who we kind of share bits and bobs back and forth. Caramel um, Tagore is one of them. Um, and then my agent also gets relatively early, um, drafts and then probably just after that, but not too far after that is my editor.
1: And, and going back to, to the Booker Prize, you are the youngest ever author shortlisted. How did that feel? How, how much of an impact did that fact, um, make upon you? I mean, it was, that was what everyone was talking about, um, in the press. Mm.
2: Uh, yeah, that was very nice. And I think that's probably why the book is, is sold quite well, um, I kind of yo-yoed around with it because I thought it was really nice for me that everyone was talking about that, but actually there were more exciting things on the shortlist than my being young, I felt. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a book on the shortlist which was written entirely in verse. Um, You know, even The Milkman, I thought, was more interesting than my being 27. (laughs) Have you read the whole shortlist? Uh, Yes, I have, yeah, (laughs) which I I very much enjoyed. Um, uh, But obviously for me, it's my first novel. That's really exciting, yeah.
0: Did you feel... That people treated you differently after you were nominated.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> not and I suppose either. did you
0: did you feel vindicated, or was it in time like a bit frightening? You know the 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 way people behaved to you.
2: It's somewhere in between, I think. Um, I felt. I, th- I think I felt vindicated in writing a book, which is quite confusing. Um, you know, which is not necessarily traditional, traditionally structured. Um, now going back to writing. It is terrifying because there is, um, there is I think, second book syndrome with my third book because there is always going to be this pressure to write something as good as everything under, you know, as good as the book that was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, I don't... I suppose people did treat me differently. I'm getting a lot more, you know, interviews and things like that. You know, a lot of friends again con- in contact who I haven't heard from for a long time. Um, yeah. Does
0: any of it seem false?
2: Um... Yeah, some of it, I suppose. I mean, it's hard to see outside of it, um, and I think that's maybe going to be one of the one of the things to watch out for as I continue writing. Is you know I have to be as good an editor um, as I was before, um, and even though people might be saying you know it's good, if that makes sense, yeah
1: um the, the reviews to, uh, of Everything Under were very good, very positive. But, but I think there was one in particular that said that both Everything Under and Anna Burns's milkman were, were both difficult to read, as you've said before. Um, and that kind of brings us back to the whole man-booker debate. Like sometimes it's too unreadable, sometimes it's too lowbrow. What do you make of that, that whole debate around it?
2: Yeah, I really felt for Anna Burns, actually, because I think she's written in a really interesting book that's trying to challenge you know trying to challenge us as readers um i do also think that the last three books that have won the booker prize all by men have not been called difficult despite the fact that george saunders book is you know incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. book to read um and i think that's interesting so you think there's an element of gender i think there is yeah i think
1: yeah um i don't know why is it because you feel people don't want to invest themselves as much in a women's writing they don't make the effort as much or they don't yeah, admire it or there's an apology perhaps yeah. you know um,
2: I'm sorry this book is difficult um, and I, I don't think anyone would ever apologise for George Saunders um, what were we talking about I can't remember what the beginning question was
1: oh just that some of the reviews picked up on the fact that oh, yeah. they found yours and Anna Burns novels difficult yeah um,
2: yeah I mean I think all the books on the shortlist are relatively difficult but it is a literary shortlist a lit- you know a literary prize um, and I think it should be it should be challenging structure and um, you know the way we write, the way we think about writing. Um, I think it would be strange if the, the books weren't difficult, whatever difficult might mean.
0: The other big debate I suppose, with the booker is is opening it to international writers. And um, do you have thoughts on that?
2: I can't decide. I go back and forth. I think that we're probably missing out on a lot of writers from the Commonwealth who we would otherwise be seeing. Um, I think. For me, being on the shortlist it, um, when it's opened up to American writers is really good because I think it means a lot of Americans are really, really excited about the list. You know, I think they were excited before; they might be even more excited now. Um, I think it would have been more controversial if um, an American man had won this year. Uh, I don't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> were you surprised and pleased that the longlist was um, female dominated? Did that make an impression on you?
2: Yeah, I was pleased, particularly you know, kind of young female-dominated um, young women writing about young women I thought was really exciting. Sally Rooney's
1: quite young as well, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. She's um, actually younger than me, I think. Yeah, 27, I think. Mm. Yeah. And um, thats I think it was the chairman of the Man Booker said that the whole shortlist was a reflection of our dark times because all of them treat quite serious issues. Would you say that was an accurate reflection of your book, that it depicted dark times? Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily how I wrote it
2: um but i'm pleased that it's being viewed that way i think particularly particularly um some of the ideas about gender which are in it um i think are quite relevant to you know the discussions that are happening at the moment why did you choose to write about gender in that way um primarily because the myth i was looking at and all the myths that i was surrounding myself by my, myself with um are filled with gender change you know it's something that happens a lot in greek myths Um, I was also really interested in writing about characters who I don't think we see very often in literature.
0: Can I ask, um, what is the actual booker ceremony like? you know what are the canapes like what's the, <laughs> what do people talk about in the loos like what's does anyone get embarrassingly drunk you know what because obviously as you say writing is a very solitary thing and yet this is an awards ceremony mm. and I know that when this was first it was televised in the 80s and it kind of created a notion of what it was to be a novelist but as you say these are like quite introverted people who spend a lot of time on their own so what's it like you know from from that perspective
2: yeah, so I watched the um did you watch the Booker documentary? Um No. It was a yeah, a documentary about kind of the um archives of the Booker which was basically um yeah, Booker Booker authors and judges and um people in publishing getting very drunk and behaving very badly, you know, sort of punching each other. Um <laughs> and um yeah, it was very civilized actually. Um but I think you're right. It's a bit strange taking all these very introverted people who um you know, we spend four years coming up with one sentence, and then suddenly you stick us in a room with Camilla, um, and you know, expect us to talk to people. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Um, the canapés are very tasty. Um, it's hard to enjoy when you're just waiting. You know, so you get there. At, um, I think I got there at half five, and then the announcement isn't till
1: twenty to ten. So you just kind of spend the whole time trying not to drink too much. And <laughs> yeah, how fraught is everyone getting? And is it clear? Has everyone read each other's work? Is there a sense of competition?
2: you so you've spent the la- the whole weekend doing events with each other um, which was actually really nice so you get a chance to meet each other um you know have a drink together um so I, there wasn't a sense of competition there was kind of a sense of camaraderie i think um and we were all on separate tables but it, yeah it didn't feel there didn't feel any kind of aggression towards yeah. anybody yeah and everyone had read each other's books Did i don't think f- everybody had had time to um yeah
0: what's your feeling more generally about um I suppose you know envy and, and things like that. You know, did you get people when you were nominated who who were not gracious towards you, or who exhibited you know maybe bad comments about your age or anything like that? Was were there how grace, graceful was were people in the experience of it?
2: To, to my face, people were really graceful, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, and I can't imagine how it would feel if people weren't. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure it happens, but yeah. no, to my face, everyone was very nice.
0: <laughs> and you know, what do you think the I suppose I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, that envy is famously the right of sin, right? You mm-hmm. know, how do you... I mean, the way, the way I suppose I, I, I think the wisest way to think about it is that there's two forms of envy. There's kind of constructive envy, which is saying, like, so-and-so has done a really impressive thing, I'd like to emulate that. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, negative envy, which is saying, you know, so-and-so has done a great thing, I'd like them to die. <laughs> and and I, I think there is a choice between... You know, you, you do have a choice with these things. yeah. But I'm interested in someone who's had this, you know, huge, huge kind of plaudit, whether you have any thoughts on on that on the you know how one should behave towards other writers and how people do behave towards people in those situations
2: yeah I think just trying to always push towards that first one um, Don't touch oh, sorry, the table. <laughs> um it, I mean it's difficult even you know sometimes you'll be sat at your desk and you're reading another writer and you think oh god um but you're also just you know as a writer everything is fodder everything is something that's seeping into you and then passing out the other side as (laughs) um as writing so I think you just always have to think of it as that you know you just always have to think of it as work and how can I be better how can I think about what this what has happened to this person what they have written um and take it into my own writing um I've had a really nice experience with the writers I've met you know I've never um but yeah of course it's hard you're all you know um, the writing world, particularly in this country, is quite small. Everyone's, you know, applying for the same prizes. Um, you're in the same publishing house as everyone who's applying for the same prizes. Um, you just have to be constructive about it, I think.
1: What do you find particularly stimulating when you're writing in terms of do you ever take yourselves to certain places? Do you travel? Do you read particular writers, watch certain films? What do you use to kind of stimulate your mind when you're feeling in a kind of hole or have got writer's block or...?
2: Yeah so there are a couple of books I have on my desk um, which kind of cycle in and out but which I um, have there just so that if I'm really struggling I can open them and read them and um, yeah so Evie Wilde is one of them, uh, Sarah Hall, um, I've recently been going back to Angela Carter for an essay, um, I'm really enjoying her. Um, short stories, I have a lot of short stories always around so you can just you know flick them open and read them. Um, I'm also, the next book is a horror novel, so I've spent a lot of time watching a lot of really bad horror films, <laughs> which I've been enjoying. Of course you've
1: mentioned how you're obsessed with haunted houses. And... Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm a Halloween baby, so um, <laughs> I've always been obsessed with horror and things like that. Um, um, yeah, travelling, I think, is also really good. I, I um, sometimes get a bit stuck in my house, but actually every time I go anywhere else, it always ends up being in a book. Really? Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, so going to York, we went to Yorkshire this year. and We have a camper van. We lived in Yorkshire for three months while I was teaching up there, um, and then that's become you know is now the late, the idea for the latest book. Yeah.
0: Can I ask about the role of Oxford or writing writing stuff that's set in Oxford? I mean, I, I read something somewhere that Oxford is the most written about city in the English language. It has such a such a tradition. Everything from Philip Pullman to Jan Morris and, and Evelyn Moore and so forth. What's it like using that as your your landscape?
2: It's not something I even thought about, but I think, because the Oxford I was writing about and everything under is not that Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, in some of the earlier drafts of the novel I tried to write not about... Not which
0: Oxford? Philip Pullman's or the Evelyn Not the Wars. Philip
2: Pullman or the Evelyn War. Okay. Or, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, they're different, aren't they? But is not, the, um, not the city Oxford. OK. Um, it's not the tourist Oxford or the student Oxford. Um, it's kind of the outskirts, the river, the canals, the wild Oxford... Um, and I tried to write about the city Oxford in an earlier draft and it just didn't work I think I hope one day I'll be able to write about cities but it's not working at the moment Um, yeah I love living in Oxford surrounded by all of that you know going to the pub that C.S. Lewis wrote in and um, going past the place Philip Pullman set the book um, on the bus Um, it is kind of seeped in language and in history um, but it's not something I'm ready to write about yet
1: so can you tell us more about your new book your horror book
2: Uh, Yes, so it's uh, early drafts, but it's about two sisters living in a house in Yorkshire and uh, strange things start happening when they're there.
1: And and why do you love horror so much as a genre?
2: Um, I think because I grew up with it um, Mm. from a very young age. My parents, I think, were like, "Okay, she's a horror baby, Um, a Halloween baby. Well, um, all of the parties will be Halloween themed. So my dad would make these kind of strange feasts where he'd label everything, you know, witches, fingers and um, eyeballs. Um, And then they gave me my first Stephen King when I was quite young. Um, And I think that's probably the seed of the interest is um, is Stephen King and what he's writing about. I also think I think writers can learn a lot about, you know, from horror. I think the way horror does tension and suspense um, is quite masterful.
0: What do you think more broadly about uh, genre writing? Mm-hmm. I mean, we we interviewed Ian Rankin um, a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about how you know he wrote his first book and didn't think it was a crime novel, and then he was put in that genre, and he was kind of uncomfortable with it, and then emerged from it. Are you you know you're almost going the other way, and you've written very sort of self-defined literary fiction, and you're going to a genre? What are they even helpful signposts?
2: As a bookseller, they're helpful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose yeah, as a pub- as a publisher to sell them. Um, I think the snobbery and elitism around them is not helpful at all. Um, and I think maybe something which is quite exciting, which is happening, is that the grey area is becoming a bit bigger. You know, they're slightly merging the different, um, you know, the different genres and literary, uh, literary genre. And uh, and I, I I am writing literary fiction because of the way it's written, and the audience that it's aimed at, but I'm also, you know, using a lot of tropes from horror, using a lot of tropes from, um, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and the weird, you know, magical realism. Um, And I think more and more writers are, which
1: I think is really exciting. Is it, what kind of horror is it? Is it psychological? Will it be gruesome as well? I don't think it'll be gruesome, but we'll see. (laughs) Do you watch horror films?
2: Yeah, I watch a lot of horror films, yeah. What are some of your favourites? There's actually been some really good ones the last few years, which are kind of feminist horror films, so it follows and the oh, yeah, bad like one yeah, yeah. Um, and girl walks home alone are yeah um, are very inspiring to me
0: and what's your your kind of contractual position now in terms of how many books are you contracted to do? has that changed with with the prize and so forth
2: i'm contracted to do um the horror novel um, and okay. that 's it at the moment
0: okay and do you feel that now you know you have kind of more flexibility and being able to do the kind of projects you'd want to do more more leverage basically in the in the market
2: we'll see it hasn't um, i sold the horror novel before all the book of stuff so it hasn't really come up yet um, and it's with
0: cape again yeah it's
2: with cape again yeah. Yeah. does it have a name uh no not yet
0: <laughs> and, and what about in terms of how it how it will be presented and you know again this this has come up with this idea of genre of how mm-hmm. how the covers are done and things like that do you have thoughts on that on how you'd like it to look and that sort of thing
2: not yet I think it'll I think because of the way I write I'm always going to be marketed as literary um and it you know it's kind I trust the publisher that's why I've stayed with them I trust them to make the right decision and to
1: market in the right way and to reach the right audience um yeah would you ever consider journalism or is that too at odds with kind of because your books are kind of Full of your imagination and you obviously love words mm. which sometimes is at odds with kind of very straight reporting um, yeah newspaper journalism
2: um, I've written some essays um, which I hadn't done until this year and um, which I've um, really enjoyed it's uh, nice to do something so entirely different than, from writing from uh, fiction writing
0: you talked about um, on the Oxford course as well how it, you, you, had, you were forced into the different genres do you see any interest in, in playwriting or poetry or screenwriting now as well
2: um I am talking to a producer at the moment about maybe writing something for the screen. Um and that re- like? uh really fun, yeah. yeah. Um it's so entirely different from writing because it's right from the beginning it's collaborative. Yeah. Um which I'm so it's all just, you know, meetings and just chatting and just throwing ideas back and forth. Um and I'm really enjoying that. I don't know if anything will come of it, but it's exciting. Um I used to write a lot of poetry and then haven't, um and I hope one day we'll go back to it. What
1: was your poetry about what kind of poetry?
2: Mm, some of it was retellings, like um, everything under. Um, it was
1: bad poetry, I think, probably. <laughs> and will everything under be... You're talking about translations before. Where Where will it be? Okay, so let me remember.
2: So far it is um, going to come out in France, um, Germany, uh, Italy, Russia, Greece and China. It'll be difficult to translate,
1: I think, because
2: yeah yeah I'm really interested to see what they do with the made up words mm.
1: yeah yes bonac. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> another point that's come up with um, writers particularly those who've had a, a fairly high level of success is that they're surprised by how much of the business of writing is, is not writing so it's going and doing publicity or marketing or, or things like that how have you found kind of entry into that world doing readings you know interaction with readers I don't know whether you talk in schools or, or other things but that that part of it
2: frightening But um, I think some writers hate it a lot more than I do. And I actually quite enjoy it. Um, I really like reading. Um, I like doing things like this, you know, podcasts. Um, I think, again, you know, we've talked about writers being isolated. I think anything you can do to not be isolated, to try and see, you know, to try and get out into the world is really, really important. Um, Sorry. um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I enjoy it. but I think you're right. I think you don't necessarily go into writing thinking that's what it's going to be like. Um, and actually, you know, I always thought when I was a writer that I could live anywhere in the world and actually I'm in London twice a week, you know, for things like this.
0: What, what's your experience with, you know, the book signing and, and interacting in person with readers? What's that like?
2: Mostly really, really good. Um, some of the shortlisting, shortlist stuff was a bit weird because there were so many book dealers, which I'd never really encountered before, you know, so... I'm um, not sure I know what a book dealer is. Um, I th- so I think someone who buy who buys a lot of first editions... Um, when they've come out, um, gets them all signed, and then we'll sell them on their website for, you know, I don't know how much, but thousands, I think. Um,
0: I bet they're quite unique people.
2: Yeah, they are. (laughs) And, uh, you know, none of them had read the book, which was a bit weird, because I think the really nice thing about doing book signings is when someone comes up and says, you know, this meant a lot to me. Um, I liked it because of this personal thing in it. Um, uh, But mostly they're really lovely. Mostly
1: I really, really enjoy them. On your Goodreads page it seems like a lot of people have listened to the book.
2: Hmm.
1: How does that feel? Have you heard your book? Read? I've heard a bit of it.
2: Um and then didn't, I think I mean it sounds amazing but I didn't want to listen to it again. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: fair enough. Yeah, um but Would you I rather people really liked... read it though rather than listen to it? Are so, you purist but.
2: Uh no, I think um anyway, you know, I don't think that reading is the easiest way for a lot of people. Um and also everyone's has such busy lives, you know, it's so nice to listen to an audiobook when you're on the train or um so no, I don't have a preference.
0: What's your thought about um, Goodreads? I think Kieran left flamboyantly <laughs> this week, um, saying it was a trap and a terrible thing for writers. What, what's your thoughts on that?
2: Um, I don't read my reviews on there, okay. which I think was what Kieran was saying. Um, you know, Kieran's very diligent at reading her reviews, um, and I just don't do that on Goodreads because I
0: just do you do on Amazon.
2: Uh, no, I don't. Um, Where do you I, read them? I read them in newspapers and on websites, but um, I I kind of just drew a line, I think, um, and could, I think because you could just spend whole, a, your a whole boundary. life a boundary, yeah. <laughs> you could just spend whole, your whole life reading reviews on Amazon, um, and I think it would drive <laughs> you mad. Um, but I use Goodreads to I have a very bad memory, so I use it to just say how many books I've read a year, and you know, so then I can
1: look back and say, oh yeah, I read that, and which I re- I like it for that. Do you read all your newspaper reviews or are there some newspapers that you, you won't read? Yeah, I read
2: all of the ones that I know about, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And what's that experience like? What was it like the first time you read a review of your work?
2: Oh. I guess it depends It depends on whether it was good or bad. I think what will always happen inevitably is that you find the one paragraph which is bad. Mm. Um, or you find the one, you know, and there have been some really bad reviews. People who just, it's just not their kind of book and that's fine. Um, have they misunderstood it in any way oh I don't want to say that but I think it's just not for them you know and I don't it's not a perfect book of course Um, no book is a perfect book and and that's kind of why I read them because I think to try and learn from them you know to try and think what can I do better next time what can I do different next time Um, and also to try and stay connected you know to try and keep the idea that you're writing for readers not for yourself
0: can I ask what are your sales like
2: um, so as far as I know, I think this is probably going to be an old number, but they're at about 6,500, maybe 7,000. Okay. Um, yeah. in hardback. In hardback, yeah.
0: And what is, again, you know, this is, this is, I think, so people don't know about it. What is the expectation with a, a literary novel of what would represent good sales for that? Do you, do your publishers talk about this? Uh,
2: no, they don't. Um... I think I'm doing relatively well. Yeah. Um, Fenn, uh sold about 2,000, okay. which is relatively good for a short story collection. Um, I think they're hoping to do better with the paperback. Um, uh, but it's, you know it's, it's always going to be quite low. Um, I think Anna Burns, um, since the book has sold about 10,000, which is for a literary novel, just like incredible.
1: Uh, Yeah. Do you feel pressure to kind of cultivate a brand on social media, and because that's what everyone's doing at the moment?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's something I talk to my publicist a lot about. um, Just because that's just a new way that people connect with writers, um, and I hated it to begin with, and now I don't mind it, so it's fine. (laughs) Do you have like a number of
1: tweets that you feel like you need to do a week, or
2: no? Just I just try and. I don't know. I, do, I guess a couple a week. I just try and do it when I can. But, um,
0: yeah. And again, what are, where are your boundaries on social media? I mean, what, what, again, we, we, I talked to, um, we talked to Ian Rankin about this, but also we had Mark Haddon on, who mm-hmm. said, like, I'll talk to anyone. Uh, like <laughs> because he's such a nice person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he was lovely, but it seemed a, a bold and perhaps unwise strategy. I mean, you know, d- who do you talk to, who do you not talk to? Where, where do you draw the line? How, you know, how public are you?
2: Um, I answer everyone's messages that they send me on Twitter. Um, I've recently, since all the book of stuff, found quite a lot of people trying to be my friend on Facebook, which I slightly draw the line at, um, draw the boundary at. Uh, um, it hasn't, I've never really had a negative experience from it yet, and maybe that will jade me more, but, um, but yeah, I agree with him. I think as long as, Mark Hand's probably getting a lot more messages than I am, uh, but as long as nothing horrible is happening, I don't see why you shouldn't. You know just talk to anyone
1: and how much of
2: yourself do you share in your writing if at all um unintentionally probably quite a lot um so, so the kind of mother daughter relationship is that based on your own oh uh, no my mum's really lovely <laughs> 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 um and, and a lot of everything under is you know because it's a retelling a lot of it is not about me but mm-hmm. I think um you know all the things about language um has come from me um and uh, yeah, I think sometimes when I read it back, I'll see things that I didn't realise were from me, but that have kind of seeped in. What kind of things
1: from everything under have you noticed? Uh,
2: yeah. So on the language, I'm a, I'm dyslexic, and I was, I was never, I never really knew why I was so interested in this made up language, and I think that's why because I'm always, you know, I say words wrong or I forget
1: words oh. or I spell words wrong. I think that's definitely where that's come from. So was bonac a word that you were accidentally saying?
2: Uh, bonac came from. I just wanted something that sounded really sharp, you know, sounded yeah. sort of snapping, um, the kind of, uh, word that a child would come up with to describe something frightening. It's like the Babadook. Kind yeah, of word. it yeah. is. Yeah. You're not supposed to say that, but yeah, that was <laughs> definitely like an, an inspiration for that word. <laughs> Where
0: has your dyslexia fitted with your writing? I mean, with A.A. A. Gill, it seemed that, you know, it was a, a big part of his, kind of his process and mm-hmm. taken through dictation and his manner of, of you know, how, how has that fitted with, with how you work?
2: Um, that's an interesting question. I suppose it probably comes a lot into all my drafting. That's probably why I do so many drafts, because it takes a bit longer. Um, I'm not an awful speller, you know. Um, people are a lot more dyslexic than I am. But um, I think definitely in the themes, the, one, the things I want to write about, I, I think that's why language and, you know, kind of... So in Fenn, um, there's a lot about the aggressiveness of language, you know, language having its own character, um, sort of a, even a kind of colonial character, and I think that's definitely where it's come from. Um, I do also think that just having spell check is a bit of a saviour.
0: <laughs> and We covered this uh, a bit in discussion of your, your editing and stuff like that, but another big uh, division that's come up with novelists we've had is to the extent that they plan and to mm-hmm. the extent they kind of throw themselves in. Um, whether you have a, a schematic of how the whole book is or you just follow your notes. What's your approach with that?
2: It's different for everything, but um, with the novel I'm working on at the moment, I uh, will plan an entire draft, um, you know, so in little chapter boxes, so I know what's supposed to happen in each chapter. Um, but I think I always, I'm always, i quite impatient. I always get too excited, so um, I will just go off plan. Um, and the plan will kind of dissolve or I'll lose it. Or um, I think I would like to be a planning novel, but planning novelist, but n- I'm not really, maybe.
1: Okay. You said how you didn't really plan at all for Everything Under. So these chapter boxes, is that a new strategy that you're doing that you didn't do before?
2: Yeah, I tried to do it in some of the drafts for Everything Under. And then that's just not how it worked. But um, And the novel that I wrote before Everything Under, which nothing, which never really came of anything, that I used chapter boxes for that as well. Do you, do you try and write for a certain number of hours a day? I try and when I'm writing, writing, I try and write for a certain uh, word count a day. Um, which is what? Uh, which would be kind of anything between two and 4,000. Well, wow, that's a lot. Mm. Um, I, I write fast and then um, it's rubbish. <laughs> Do you have a or is it always on your computer? Um, I handwrite notes, but um, the actual writing is on my computer.
0: So if, if it's 4,000 words a day, so you you sort of have a novel draft in a month or something, something like that?
2: Two to 4,000 words a day. But So not every day, it'll be 4,000. But yeah, that's kind of how I write, is I write drafts very fast Hmm. and then go back and delete a lot of it and write it again um, and keep doing that. Mm,
1: Gosh, yes. And, And how many... Do you think you'll have a limit to how many drafts you want this new horror book considering you had seven or eight for everything under, which must have been exhausting by the end? So this is the third draft of this one, but
2: not third from scratch okay um and yeah i'm hoping there's going to be less um but um, it's now kind of um i'm working on my uh, editor's edits my editor and my agent's edits for this so i think it's more down it's kind of down to her as well at this point um but i don't think there'll be seven
0: can you can you you alluded to changing agents earlier can you give any context of why i mean say as much or as little as you'd like about this but why you made the decision to change who was representing you
2: um, my agent went to work in publishing. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and um, I was offered the opportunity to stay at the agency where he worked um, with his boss, but I didn't want to, and so I found a new agent.
0: Because something that again we we discuss often is is if you're a, you know a young writer, what are the relative advantages of having your people, so your agent, your editor, like? Very, very experienced, but perhaps time poor, as opposed to like Mm. youngsters who don't have as much experience, but you know, you're they're more perhaps more invested in you. Do you have thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so certainly in looking for an agent the second time around, um, I was in a really good position in that, um, people wanted to be with me as well as I wanting to be with them, um, because I already had a book written that was doing, uh, you know, okay, um. And I met, as you say, I met a lot of agents who were older, who had a lot bigger lists, um, and who did have less time. And I eventually decided that I kind of wanted to go with someone younger who was going to grow at the same time as I was growing. You know, they they were kind of we were going to hopefully make our careers together. Um, and my editor is um, similar. Um, she is um, she's not the same editor that I worked on Fen with, but. I worked on everything under with her and she is now there's only two authors on her list Um, and I really like that I really like kind of you know um,
1: yeah becoming yeah you posted a really interesting question that an interviewer asked you about horror on your Twitter the other day and I've been thinking about it as well which Mm. was how does horror manifest itself at sentence level do you have were you able to answer when the interviewer asked you and do you have an answer now
2: yeah I blathered for ages and was really excited about it Um, yeah, I think what I meant and what I've thought about is, you know, when we're writing horror fiction, does the way the sentences are structured, you know, their length or the use of punctuation is it any different from when we're writing literary fiction. And, um, obviously there are parts of everything under which are horror like. Um, and I think it's maybe something to do with, you know, drawing the reader along. Horror is always, is all about, how long can we hold the reader before the big reveal, you know, before the scare? Um, so I think, yeah, using punctuation to do that. Um, I'm actually now working on my horror novel. I'm changing it into first person, which is something I'm interested
1: about. Um, do you think that makes it scarier? Um,
2: I think it makes it... It's something I needed for this particular book because I need to be that close to the mm. character. Um, and I, I think that will make it scary. I guess psychologically, yeah, and the way that yeah, the way that the character will use their sentences—how scary that is.
0: Well, that seems a very good place to bring us to a close. Daisy, thanks for being uh, so gracious and talking uh, so candidly about a broad range of things, and wishing you the very best with all your projects
1: going forward. And congratulations forward. again. Thanks very much. Thank you. So Simon, how did you think that uh, interview with Daisy Johnson went?
0: So this is us introducing a bit of a new feature on the podcast. We're going to have a yeah a kind of brief post-mortem of how it went after the episode. I thought it was really interesting. I thought that, um, you know, I w- I'm always fascinated with people who've been through these big experiences, whether it's having a, a massive bestseller or, or winning a prize, you know, what, what that moment is like, what, what the emotional tenor of it is like. Um, clearly, she'd done a lot of press and a lot of interviews, but I thought we we more or less. Mm, she was that. slightly
1: weary, but but to be expected. After yeah,
0: yeah, such a flurry so. of press. Um,
1: Very humble, I thought. I don't think she was used to talking about herself. Well, we we right
0: were next. also in the Penguin Random House podcast bunker, which is um, always a slightly odd experience to do it. But yeah, mm. I think you know that in some ways is why it's interesting to do this to, to talk to someone, um, you know, and just get a sense of what it felt like do that.
1: Exactly.
0: Anyway, um, an update from our lives. What have you been doing?
1: Uh, so I am wrapping up my, my last day at GQ today.
0: Literally right now? Literally,
1: we're... yeah. I, we're in the office and I have about four hours left until... Um, Dylan Jones uh, reveals the mocked-up cover that um, he's done with me, which which we do for everyone that leaves with some awful cover lines, I'm sure.
0: And we should say that you can probably hear the, the Condé Nast lunchtime rush yeah. in the background. And then you're you've got a month off.
1: I've got three and a half weeks off. Yeah, I'm going to New York to visit my boyfriend who lives out there, and then I'm going to Paris for a few days by myself, and then going to Mexico for a week.
0: Fantastic. Um, I have just submitted uh, another round of my book to the copy editor. I hesitate to say that it's the last thing, but I think <laughs> it. I think it almost is. It's going off to production, which is very exciting. Um, and then I am off to Spain to go and do a trek uh, as my post-book treat. Is that so, a story or just? No, no. I wanted to do something so cliché that I couldn't possibly write. about it. <laughs> um, Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akam
1: And me, Eleanor Halls.
0: Our producer is Nicola Keane Zara Hankier handles our social media. Uh, our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. You now say...
1: Oh yes, sorry. I was just staring at your eyes there. Uh, yes, you can follow us on Twitter at Take Notes Always, or on Instagram and Facebook at Always Take Notes. You can also find us on iTunes... And please do uh, leave a review if you enjoyed the episode.
0: And if you feel like contributing to our crowdfunding campaign, you can do so at patreon.com slash always Thank you. Thank you.